Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast, the show that brings leading minds from the energy industry to discuss the challenges and trends that are transforming and modernizing our energy system. And a quick thank you to West Monroe, our sponsor of today's show. Now, let's talk energy. I'm Jason Price, Energy Central podcast host and director with West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And with me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager, Matt Chester. Matt, we're both on the East Coast, so when we think about potential natural disasters, our minds probably go more towards hurricanes. But every region in the country has potential for Big ones, major events like tornadoes in the Midwest and South, floods near almost anywhere, deep freezes, and in the West, earthquakes and tsunamis. And it seems like these natural disasters are happening more and more. Can you provide a bit of context on how the threat of these major events impacts utility planning? Sure, Jason. So, you know, preparing for the worst has always been important for any infrastructure, especially as wide and critical as the power grid. But that doesn't mean that the process has gotten any easier. From ensuring that there are boots on the ground to repair the grid after a disaster, to preparing to be stocked with necessary equipment in the events of failure, to financially planning for all the above, utility management requires careful and constant attention on emergency response and disaster recovery. And this is one of those jobs that it truly never ends for utility leaders, making the conversation all the more important and compelling. Yeah, thanks for that, Matt. We wanted to give some firsthand insights on the world of utility preparations for earthquakes, especially as concerns for the big one is always in the back of minds of those planning for the future. And so today we have two guests on the podcast who can speak from firsthand experience and a position of authority and leading expertise in this area. They've alluded to us that what's needed isn't grid hardening, but more accurately referred to as looking at it as grid softening. And I'm really eager to learn more about what that means. So let's introduce our guests. First on the call, we have Dr. Leon Kempner, the Principal Civil Engineer for the Department of Energy's Bonneville Power Administration, or BPA. Dr. Kempner has over four decades of experience in structural engineering analysis and design as it relates to transmission lines and substations. With that experience, Dr. Kettner has become the forefront expert in the world of preparing utilities and grid operators for major events, notably earthquakes. Dr. Kettner, thank you so much for joining us today on the call. Thank you too, and I'm happy to participate in this activity. And joining Dr. Kettner, we also have a leader at one of the utilities that is implementing the types of solutions that the doctor is researching. Our second guest is Seamus Gamash, Director of Engineering at Central Lincoln PUD. Seamus has been with the utility for over 15 years and Central Lincoln PUD serves 41,000 meters and 66,000 people across 700 square miles on the coast of Oregon. This coast just so happens to be among the closest to a major subduction earthquake zone called the Cascadia. So the persistent threat of earthquakes and resultant tsunamis is always quite close to home for them, making resilience against the once-in-a-generation event a very clear and present focus of their leadership. Seamus, thanks for joining us as well today to chat about this important topic. 
Great, and thank you for having both Leon and I as your guests. Dr. Kepner, I wanna start with you. So set the stage of this topic. When we had a chance to chat previously, you had mentioned of some vast travels you've made across the world to evaluate the situation for utility systems in various places after major earthquakes from Japan to Chile to California. So can you tell us a bit about what the process looks like when you go to these sites? Why do you go to these locations after an earthquake? What are you looking for? And what are the results of these trips? Sure. You know, BPA, Bonneville Power Administration, has had a history of evaluating extreme events. And in this particular case, we're talking about earthquakes. And so whenever we see an extreme event that has a similar potential, similar effect on our grid, we want to learn the best we can. And there's no better way of learning about how the grid performs by not going and seeing it actually the result of these events. So a good example, after the San Fernando earthquake, uh, we have a facility in California that's the other end of our DC line. We went down and looked at what the damage levels were there. And similar to the California earthquakes, when we can, we will take that, that opportunity to visit those sites and see not only what failed, but also what worked. So then when the subduction zone became identified as an active fault within the Northwest, obviously we needed to learn exactly what can be done or what has been done by other utilities that have experienced these. And as we all know, Chile and Japan see these type of earthquakes almost on a regular basis. In the Pacific Northwest, we have the big subduction zone off the coast. The last time that activated was in the 1700s. And so we don't have a lot of experience in how to prepare for that event. So the best way to do that is to to visit these countries that have gone through that. Now, it's not an easy trip. Obviously, these are the worst times to visit these countries during these type of events. So typically, we, we join a team, the professional societies like IEEE, and, which is American, uh, the electrical engineers, professional uh, activities, and the ASC professional activities. We join a, a reconnaissance team. Those reconnaissance teams set up site visits, because again, it's, you know, this is not the best time to ask Japan or Chile utilities, can we come and look at your sites? Because they're pretty active and trying to get them all back up. But we do go there with a team of engineers, not necessarily all utility engineers. Most of the time it's building related or bridge related. Uh, We're kind of rare when we get to do this. And then we go and visit the utilities. We ask them what worked, what didn't work. They take, give us uh, site visits, where the damage might still be. A lot of times when we get there, most of the damage has been cleaned up and we sit down and talk with them and and just trying to learn what we can do better when this event happens here. Understood. All right. So it's obviously not about prevention because it's um, not something that we can control, but it's really about pre-event preparation. What does your work around the U.S. sector look like today and and how we, and and describe for us how, how prepared are we for the nation as a nation for these major events, whether earthquakes or otherwise? Yeah, so uh, at BPA, I've been having, I've been fortunate and lucky to be able to participate in the numerous, numerous activities for getting our grid more resilient. I mean, other than the fact that, you know, we did hazard assessment of our grid not too long ago to determine uh, what was our extreme event. You know, we looked at extreme ice, extreme wind, and earthquakes. And again, you know, the big subduction zone goes well beyond the normal types of events we see, because in that case, we can have multiple, multiple, multiple damage levels in substations and transmission. So one of the things we do is we participate in standards activities, 
to make sure that those extreme events, whether they're wind, ice, or earthquake, are being addressed in our standards. This is also done in professional activities. I particularly participate in the NIST Center for Resiliency because one of the things we have to understand, as well as with the Oregon Resiliency Plan, it's not only about getting the grid up, it's understanding what the region needs after these events and how fast and how soon they need it. So we participate in a multiple multitude of uh, professional and uh, regional, national and regional activities to both educate and learn how we can become more resilient as an electric power grid. Dr. Kepner, you've mentioned a visual metaphor to us before that I think helps explain this further to those who don't have your expertise, one involving a transformer on a skateboard. Can you talk about that? Sure. So one of the things I get the opportunity to do at Bonneville is do applied research relative to coming up with solutions to that we can implement in the power grid to become more resilient. And the two that we've been working on and one we completed, and that's the, the base isolation of transformers. So one of the, you know, base, base isolation is used in the infrastructure for buildings, bridges, but it hasn't really been used in power grid solution, particularly with transformers. So what base isolation does is you take your transformer, instead of anchoring it direct to the ground, where in that situation, the ground motions or the forces, if you would, are directly transported into the transformer, you put it on an isolated system. In this case, we're talking uh, friction pendulums. And what those do is they disconnect the transformer from the ground. So what it also does is it makes the the transformer what's called a a lower natural frequency. So it it, it actually doesn't move, but the ground moves from underneath it and the transformer kind of sits on top of that ground. The other thing that we're doing is research that has been proven to work well in earthquakes is how you interconnect your substation equipment with flexible bus. And so adding flexibility between two pieces of equipment or pieces of equipment in a structure helps it perform in an earthquake because the two pieces of equipment have different earthquake responses and they tend to fight each other and hurt each other. So relatively speaking, adding flex and understanding the loads that those flexible jumpers or cables input onto the equipment is very important for survivability. I like that. So it's almost not a grid hardening. It's not necessarily grid softening, but it's maybe it's grid reflexing. One of my colleagues engineer says it's it's not the load. That, well, I'm not sure if I agree with him, but one of my colleagues says it's not always the loads that cause failure. It's the displacements that cause failure. Mm-hmm. And if you can allow the displacements, you're probably better off than trying to make each piece of equipment uh, resist each other's load. So, yes. All right. Very good. So thank you, doctor, for the the sort of the global view you provided. Uh, Now let's bring it to local geographic areas. So Seamus, I want to bring you to the local level and discuss your work around Central Lincoln PUD. And obviously the ability to prepare for major events and unexpected disasters is important for any utility with a recognized vulnerability, such as your case being near a major subduction earthquake zone. So talk to us about the role you play in trying to prepare your utility for these major events and how the work of Dr. Kepner factors in. And can you address that interesting turn of of phrase that I mentioned in the intro? How is a solution more like a grid softening than grid hardening? Yeah. First, I'll familiarize the audience with uh, Central Lincoln Service Territory on uh, the Oregon coast. So we are Central Oregon Coast power utility provider following along the Highway 101 north to south for about 120 miles. And 
geographically, that's about a third of the total length of Oregon's coast. And we go about 30 miles inland. So we're bordered on the Oregon Coast Range to the east and the Pacific Ocean to the west. We own and operate 28 substations and have both 69 kV and 115 kV transmission power lines and also 12,005 kV distribution power lines. My role as the director of engineering uh, encompasses the substations, the transmission, the distribution, telecommunication system infrastructure, and it's to design and maintain those systems, not only to be reliable when faced with our reoccurring Oregon Coast winters that come to us each year, but also to be resilient to withstand those 300 to 400 year earthquakes such as Cascadia that Leon talked about. And also that's where Dr. Kempner's research has been key in coming up with ways to prepare our utility infrastructure. We know that we're overdue for such an event and with the reoccurring winter storms that pound the Oregon coast each year, we've referred to it as hardening the system in our terminology so that the substations and transmission lines would not break and fall apart when those winds reached 100 plus miles per hour on the Oregon coast. Now, grid softening is the term we like to use within our substations when designing for a major earthquake that describes how we don't want those transformers, insulators, bushings, or other critical equipment to break. A much softer dampening effect underneath the transformers and things like the flexible bus or conductors connected on the top of the transformers. We wanna be able to soften the electrical grid allowing for lateral movement. Basically, the transformers isolated from the ground and the fixed connected parts and will be able to ride through an event undamaged. And ultimately, the end goal in mind is to get the lights back on as quickly as possible once we've assessed the system and the system engineering staff and operations is ready to re-energize. That's great. Thank you, Seamus. So as an important topic, no doubt, some of the inertia, unfortunately, comes down to dollars and cents. So. Share with our listeners, Seamus, what sort of investment is required for the updates you're making? Yes, uh, Central Lincoln continued to, to set aside capital dollars each year, specifically allocated for grid resiliency in preparation for this large earthquake. We budget little by little for this. So, for example, when we're replacing an $800,000 substation transformer, we now budget for the proper triple pendulum base isolation systems that Bonneville and specifically Leon recommends to go underneath the transformers. And prior to Leon's research and, and data sharing, uh, we were not doing that. So now we're softening the grid by adding those base isolation systems. That base system cost is minimal when we're looking at replacing a large power transformer that could have a one, two, three, or maybe even more year lead time once an order is placed. Other low-hanging fruit types of investments are replacing the fixed hard bus or aluminum carrying conductors with flexible bus. And we use IEEE 1527 2006 as a guideline for the best practice. There's also IEEE 693 to reference for seismic design of substations. All right, that's great. So I want to ask both of you, it's really around you know, the sort of like the knowledge sharing and the preparation that's going on. So you mentioned IEEE, and that's an organization where there's knowledge sharing going on. But in your opinions, for both of you, uh, what more can be done to help utility leaders address this issue? We have had people on the podcast talk about 
resiliency and adaptation based on, you know, climate change and, and so on. But are we taking it seriously? Are our leaders talking about it enough? Are the regulators supporting these kinds of investments or should they be doing more? We'd love to hear your impressions from both of you on this topic. Doctor, we'll start with you. It's a very good question. I mean, as Seamus said, that from the Cascadia perspective and, and, and maybe even from any of the natural disasters that we or the disasters that we face, particularly with the subduction zone though, you know, we built our grid with very minimal earthquake in the Pacific Northwest because we tended to be considered minimal earthquake. I mean, we see a lot in the Seattle, Puget Sound area, but overall in Oregon, I think it was not till about the 1980s before we actually had seismic criteria in our codes. So we have a very, very old system that wasn't designed for this event and just too difficult to go out and just say, well, we're going to replace everything. So we have to do it on a on a long-term basis. And that's how most utilities and even the Oregon Resiliency Plan was over decades to get to the point where we're ready, hopefully, that it doesn't happen before then. But, you know, we are a small community, the electric power industry community, and we do talk a lot about this, uh, particularly on the West Coast, about earthquakes and what can be done. And, you know, we are a little unique in that we have the subduction zone, whereas California, at least most of California, doesn't have that type of event. And there are some differences in terms of the response. You know, a crustal earthquake is going to take out a few substations. So the ducting zone, in our case, could take out 157 substations. So it has some kind of damage to every one of them. So you need to do something, and it's just going to take a long time. But at the same time, you know, when we try to do this type of resiliency work, we also have to maintain the reliability of the system. That costs money, and we have to be cost-effective. So just to keep our rates reasonable for our, our customers. It's a really balancing act, constantly a balancing act on obtaining funding to do the resiliency level work versus the reliability work. But, you know, BPA and Central Lincoln and most of the utilities in the Northwest, I feel, are doing a decent job. And just relative to the base isolation, there are actually five utilities in the Pacific Northwest now that have base isolated transformers. The nice thing about the base isolation of a transformer, it protects the whole transformer because the transformer is one of our most vulnerable pieces of equipment. It's a piece of equipment we can't operate without. And with the supply chain and the things in, in the world right now, it could take up to three years to replace the transformer, particularly the real high voltage ones, the 500s, the 230s, and so forth. So, you know, we just have to continue to chip at it, and hopefully we have enough time to get where we need to be before that event happens. Sure. Seamus, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, good question. And, you know, when I started my career at Central Lincoln in the mid-2000s, earthquakes really were not even talked about or budgeted for at our utility. We knew they'd happened. I think the one that was more significant was probably in the 60s or 70s. But when the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and, and subsequent tsunami hit the coast of Japan, we saw some of the effects of that here in North America and specifically on our coastline. Nothing like what they saw in Japan, but we did see some debris and such that came up on our side of the uh, world. And so since then, we've been budgeting for resiliency, specifically earthquakes and tsunamis and designing and uh, getting prepared for such an event. I've led tours here to other local small and mid-sized utilities from both Oregon and Washington of our most modern earthquake-ready substations here right along the Oregon coast. And I encourage more utility leaders to reach out to me and, and Leon and ask questions about how they can make their system more resilient in preparation for an earthquake. Uh, anytime, I'd be happy to visit your utility and make an assessment 
what you can do to make your substation and other critical infrastructure more resilient, earthquake ready, just building on what we've learned from Bonneville and what we're implementing here at Central Lincoln. That's great, Seamus. That's really helpful. And I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate that as they think more about these types of issues and knowing that there's resources to reach out to, including yourself and the doctor. So thank you for that. Back over to you, doctor. You know, you travel the world, so you have a more global perspective on how this is being addressed. Can you do a little bit of a compare and contrast what you're seeing in Asia and else in South America, how they're preparing and how does that compare to how the U.S. approaches it? Yeah, it's a really good question because when we first started looking at the subduction zone and through our grid hazard assessments, looking at the damage levels, you know, you just start to wonder whether you can survive this type of event. But if you do look towards Japan and you look towards Chile, they do survive this event. But again, they've been preparing for it by experiencing those. And, you know, when you experience something, hopefully you learn from it and you implement what you learn. Obviously, though, you, you know, you don't always catch it all. And so the next event, you learn some more. So one of the things we learned by going to Japan and Chile is you can survive these events. They're, they're survivable, but you need to get prepared. You need to design for it. Particularly in Chile, when we went to Chile after the, their big subduction zone, one of the things, and this goes back to this grid softening issue, we went into some of their larger substations, like 500 kV substations, and they still have what's called live tank circuit breakers down there at 500 kV. These are the most vulnerable pieces of equipment other than the transformer to an earthquake because you've got thousands of pounds of porcelain and components on a porcelain uh, column. They were base isolated and they didn't have any failures. And looking through their substations, a lot of their equipment, I won't say most, but a lot of their equipment has some kind of damping or base isolating devices, which again, is this softening issue. So you can prepare for this, you can be ready. Unfortunately, you know, with our grid, since we haven't been in our region, we haven't seen these, uh, you know, in our other than 1700, we have a lot of vulnerabilities out there and you know we just need to work at it getting them getting them replaced so hope i answered that question yeah you did absolutely thank you uh, seamus reminds me of a podcast we had with an executive from duke energy who's also a fireman and he worked closely with the local fire departments on the safety around batteries should batteries ever catch on fire you know, god forbid so I imagine that a lot of your work also has to include um, local police and fire departments and other sorts of security and safety management, given the, the, the overall nature. So it's not just the plumbing, if you will, of what goes into these systems, but then how do you contain it and bring whatever potential um, outcome of the disaster might lead to so that you can get back up on and running as soon as possible. Am I correct on that? Yeah, that, absolutely. That, that is key. And utilities usually do a pretty good job, but if they're not, they need to be communicating with their local fire departments. And what we like to do is, you know, Central Lincoln serves, I think, 12 cities, and then we have parts of four different counties in Oregon. So multiple different fire departments and fire districts. We give them tours of our substations, helping them familiarize with what equipment is in there, what type of fire suppression we have in our control buildings, and what to do if there is an event where they need to come out to. And so we keep up the communications, and I recommend that if you're not already with your local fire districts. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go back over to the doctor. Certainly, Seamus, you can jump in and answer as well. Both of you possess unique knowledge and insight, and it's in an industry that's this is really strongly needed and even more so than ever before. 
but it's also unique knowledge that you don't necessarily get from the classroom, but over time and on the field and, and over the years of uh, studying this and examining it. So both of you have been students in this for quite some time and have done a great job. You know, maybe this is a question more for the doctor, but, you know, given the pioneering work that you're doing, how are you hoping the next generation of utility professionals will will embody this, uh, take in this insight and run with it in the future. So what are your impressions? And again, both of you can answer this. I could start. Uh, I think I said this earlier that, you know, we are a small community and we do talk to each other quite a bit through our professional activities and just meeting. The other thing I want to point out is we're very concerned about our customers, obviously, but we also interact with other infrastructure because the other infrastructures like highway, water, natural gas, and so forth, need to know what the utilities are doing, electric utilities are doing. And so we have in Oregon, we have a program called CLIP, Cascadia Lifeline Infrastructure Protection Program, and it's out of Oregon State. And it's a consortium of critical lifeline providers that get together. We put some money into a, a budget and we do research that's common to all of those. Most times it's common to all of all of our infrastructure components. And so but my guess, even with our professional activities, like like was mentioned, 693, 1527, and there's a whole bunch of others too, EPRI, CIATI, which is out of Canada, and all our standards activities, we talk to each other. So just like base isolation, you know, BPA spent, what, we spent four years developing that technology, verifying that technology, which is the triple friction pendulum. It is the appropriate technology to apply to our most critical component. And we shared that information. And like I said earlier, we've got now five utilities in the Pacific Northwest. California utilities are looking into it. They're a little more hesitant for some reason. I'm not quite sure why, but we do talk to each other. And even within Bonneville, you know, I keep being asked because it was mentioned that I have decades and I'm ready to retire, obviously. What's going to happen when I go? But we have good young engineers and BPA that can step in my place. So I think that's also true of the industry. A lot of these committees we participate on, like I'll be honest with you, I became the old guy. There's a lot of good talent, young talent on these groups that will move us forward in this area. Yeah, exactly. I'll add to that list. So NWPPA, Northwest Public Power, there's, there's, they have conferences throughout the Northwest. Often, you know, I've been seeing a lot of momentum both with them, IEEE, Western Energy Institute out of Portland, Oregon. They're up and down the West Coast for both the gas and electric sector. There's been more and more presentations and talk around resiliency, specifically Cascadia for Oregon, Washington, and parts of British Columbia. I'm a licensed engineer in the state of Oregon. And so at the conferences at the engineering group, which makes up all the engineering disciplines, civil, electrical, mechanical, nuclear, and also surveyors, there's been more and more talk at our meetings about how the Northwest is preparing for a large event like Cascadia. Uh, last week, I spoke at Portland State University to a civil engineering class that specifically focused around resiliency and lifeline planning throughout the state. And so at the university level, there's been more professors or experts speaking up on uh, resiliency here in Oregon at different universities. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. I feel a lot more reassured now. You definitely talked me off the cliff. Um, it's good to hear there's a next generation of leaders to, to carry this forward, your important work. 
All right, so we have now come to the point of the show where we actually want to learn more about you, the person, rather than the professional. So we have something called the lightning round where we ask you a set of questions and you're to keep the response to either one word or phrase. So, gentlemen, are you ready? Yeah, this is the part part about this podcast, so let's go for it. Okay. (laughs) Earthquakes are scary, but what is your favorite thing about the West Coast? Doctor, let's start with you. Being able to go to the uh, Oregon, beautiful Oregon coast and into the high desert of Oregon and the eastern side. I'm from New York, so I really appreciate what we have here in Oregon. Seamus. Uh, yeah, believe it or not for this topic, but getting outdoors. Like it. All right, uh, Seamus, we'll stay with you. Movie, TV show, or book you could revisit countless times without ever getting tired of it. That's easy. Uh, movies, Guardians of the Galaxy series. Doctor. I would uh, second that, Galaxy. Garden of Galaxies, yes. Third question, stay with you, Doctor. When do you get the most productive work done? Probably late evenings when everybody's in bed and no phone calls. Seamus. Mornings after a a good cup of freshly ground coffee. (laughs) Uh, We'll stay with you, Seamus. If you didn't end up in the world of engineering and energy like you both did, what do you think would have been an alternative career path? Not engineering, so my next ones up would be oceanographer or maybe a merchant marine doctor mine would be try to be a medical doctor where i would have more direct uh, contact with the people i'm helping okay and then lastly we'll stay with you doctor what are you most motivated by given the opportunity to address challenging problems and the resources to do it Seamus, striving to always do my best you guys have done a great job and as a tradition On this show, we always give our guests the last say in your words. So you're speaking to our audience of your peers. Seamus, we'll stay with you. What are your final words or takeaways that you'd like to share with your colleagues? Well, you know, we're all great at making our systems reliable as utility engineers. I want you folks to challenge yourself moving forward to make them more resilient and adaptable to all different kinds of weather events. And doctor? Yeah, as lifeline providers, as a critical lifeline provider, uh, you know, we, we strive to do the best we can. We, a lot of times people we're trying to help don't understand that, but unfortunately someday we may have that event and hopefully everything we did will make their lives better during that event. Absolutely. And I know that our audience is going to be much appreciated with the words of wisdom that you both shared today. For anyone who's not from your region, they don't understand necessarily the complexity of the challenge that you both are preparing to potentially and hopefully never have to face. But I think it's uh, definitely a wake-up call for everyone to look in their own locality and make sure that they are prepared, as well as both of you are in the Bonneville region. So excellent job, excellent conversation. Thank you for the insight, and thank you so much for joining on today's show. And you can always reach Seamus and Dr. Kempner through the Energy Central platform where they welcome your questions and comments. We also want to give a shout out of thanks to the podcast sponsor that made today's episode possible. Thanks to West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. West Monroe brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data and analytics, and cybersecurity. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. 
So stay plugged in and fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And we'll see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Mm -hmm.